This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and I'm joined by Katie Balls and James Forsyth. Well, the online harms bill, which The Spectator has been campaigning on uh, through its long and painful journey as a piece of draft legislation, has been amended again by ministers. James, just bring us up to speed uh, with what Michelle Donnellan is doing with it and whether uh, it satisfies our concerns about the legal but harmful uh, issue. So what Michelle Donnellan has done is to essentially remove the concept of legal but harmful for adults. She is making some more content like suicide, self-harm, encouragement of people to self-harm actually illegal. But she is keeping the concept of legal but harmful for children. Now, I think Fraser's written a, a blog setting out you know, the questions that he thinks still needs to be asked. I personally think that the biggest question is, can you ensure that the tech companies don't just serve up a kind of children's menu to everybody? That you don't end up with everyone getting the kids' menu? When you talk to ministers about this, they say that because the networks, these social networks, will need to make much more of an effort to know, uh, to enforce age verification and to know how old their users are, that will prevent them from just kind of serving up everyone kind of chicken goujon and fish fingers. I think the bill is definitely an improvement on what went before. I, I think Fraser's blog is a, is, is, a, is a series of interesting questions about how it will work in practice. But I think, I think, I think the, kind of the, 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 the worst bits of uh, legal what harmful and what it threatened to do have, I think, gone. Katie, there is going to be still a political fight over this, isn't there? There's Nadine Dorries, the former culture secretary, who was very keen on this legal but harmful definition, who uh, warned, I think, a few weeks ago that if Michelle Donnellan uh, made inexperienced mistakes with it, then there'd be the mother of all fights, uh, particularly with female MPs. This legislation polls extremely well because parents are really worried about a sort of wild west on the internet that they don't understand for their children. So this legislation is still going to have a pretty rough landing in the Commons. Completely. It's a really complex piece of legislation. You can see just from the conversation we've had so far, so Fraser's criticism, which is coming from a free speech element to say, despite the fact there has been a change, which those on the other side are saying, well, this is too much freedom of speech. This is not enough protection. You still got people are saying, actually, you need to go further. So even today, the compromise that was meant to please some of the voices who had raised free freedom of speech concerns hasn't pleased those people entirely and has then further isolated those who wanted more provisions. And then you also have... Um, David Davis, you know, who's who's brought up questions about end-to-end encryption and whether the bill could undermine this. And I think there is a sense that this is going to be one of the most knotty pieces of legislation, really, in terms of what this government is trying to do. And if we look already at how the levelling up bill is becoming a a place for various rebellions and different directions on amendments, I think getting this through Parliament is, is going to be uphill and... Broadly speaking, I I think the government will be fairly okay as a reaction so far today in the sense, yes, you have the critics who are voicing concerns before, but it doesn't quite yet feel as a grand swell of something new. But I do think once they want to get into the process of this, it's going to get more and more complex. 
James, this is just one of the many areas uh, where Rishi Sunak is is still having to to navigate through a grumpy, factious, uh, potentially rebellious Conservative Party. He gave a speech last night that covered the equally fraught topic of China. Just tell us how he shifted his position on that. So the big debate at the moment is whether you call China a systemic challenger or a threat. Uh, In the summer leadership contest, Rishi Sunak leaned towards the threat language. In his speech last night, he leaned towards systemic challenge. I I think as Katie says in her blog, we'll have to wait for for the update to the integrated review, I think, to find out kind of which one... They are, they are firmly going for. I think, though, there is a danger. You know, Ian Duncan Smith, who, who is you know, one of the leading China hawks, has written a piece in The Express today. He's saying, oh, you know, that this is in danger of being appeasement. I think, though, it's worth taking a step back, which is this, which is, I mean, the most important thing is that you end up in a situation where the UK and, you know, the US and other like-minded allies are in the same place on the China question. Because ultimately, if you are going to reduce dependence on China, you will need to do that 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 collectively. And I thought one of the things that was so damaging about the Huawei 5G row, which the government eventually backed down on, was that it was the US saying, well, hang on a second, this will make a lot of the things that we do with you more difficult if you proceed down this path. And I think if you actually look at, the, at, at, at where the UK's position on this is now, it is, it is pretty much lined up with the other members uh, with the US, Canada and, and Australia. I also think that, you know, that there's another question, which is what, what is the government doing on this front? And I think the Newport Wafer Fab decision, which you know, has been in the pipeline for a long time, is, I mean, is significant because up to now it has been regarded that, that, that takeovers are blocked on national security ground if somehow the technology is unavailable elsewhere. What the Newport Wafer Fab decision shows is that you're saying we're going to block takeovers because they would create an excessive dependence on companies owned by one country and and companies owned in in China are are not independent in the way that we think of as Western companies are. We're creating unhealthy dependence on on companies owned by one country. I mean, that, that is a big step forward because if you are going to reduce your dependence on authoritarian regimes, in particular China, that is the mindset shift that you need. It's not about whether the technology is unavailable elsewhere or not. It's whether whether that country is developing a kind of chokehold on the supply of critical materials. Katie, if we return to Tory mood watch, uh, what's been the response to, to this so far? It's, it's obviously been a confusing year for China watchers given the, the various stances of Boris Johnson, Liz Truss in particular, and now Rishi Sunak. So where are the, the different China factions this week? And the Foreign Affairs Committee are, have flown out, I think, overnight to Taiwan as well. Yes, yeah, so I think the jury's still out when you speak to lots of the China hawks on Rishi Sunak. I mean, Ian Duncan Smith's op-ed, as James mentioned, is really focusing on what is the crunch point on this in the sense the speech we had last night is uh Rishi Duck's first big foreign policy uh you know set piece but yet we learned a little bit from it we didn't learn that much we learned that he obviously that he is going to be harder on China than Osborne and Cameron were I mean it'd be very surprising and politically impossible to, I think really this party to 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 suggest the golden era is going to keep going so so the write-up which is you know the end of the golden era I feel it ended some time ago. But then also this talk about rhetoric and saying, you know, I'm going to be robust pragmatism as the, as the uh, phrase Richard Sunak used, which doesn't sound the most 
scary um, approach. And I think that phrase has caused a little bit of alarm of some Tory MPs in the sense, what does this pragmatism look like? Now, even when you speak to some of the strongest China hawks, they still believe that you have to deal with China in some way. But I think just there's been some saying, well, is this a closer relation, robust pragmatism? But it's quite clear that I think, again, probably learning more from how he is differentiating than what he is doing himself. I thought talking about how you're not going to have this big rhetoric and instead you'll focus on, you know, achieving things really more quietly. That's quite different, I think, to some of the things Boris Johnson and Liz trusted. You think about Liz Truss's language and how she would do um, these big foreign policy statements on various things, and he's less inclined to do this. So we learned a bit about how he's going to differ, but it was really about this integrated review update and um, the thing that's really the most animated thing for the, for the China research group and others is, do you call China a systemic threat? That's what Ian Duncan Smith's piece is all about. And therefore, I think that while there's been some light grumbles since the speech last night, that there's not a huge rebellion kicking off. The question is, in the new year, when they publish this update, if Rishi Sunak, who I think is seen by those in government as wanting to have a fairly pragmatic um, relationship with China, if they don't call it a threat, I think you will, you, you will see these MPs pushing and questioning. And one of the things I think with Rishi Sunak, which is quite... As you, as you get to grips with another Tory prime minister this year, is because Rishi Sunak is just a bit... He's less inclined almost to, to perform to the gallery on various things. So even though he is a Brexiteer, he does not make these, you know, these really uh, eye-catching statements, which then trigger a war of words between the two sides. And I think sometimes it means that as James was just alluding to, if you actually look at some of the actions of this government, it's taking a stance and also some of the things he said during the leadership contest, which is, uh, you know, being sceptical of China and challenging China. But by ultimately choosing to have a more diplomatic approach in your in your words, I think you can just give off the vibe, which means people are a bit sceptical about how much you mean it. I think there is another irony, which is that, that I think one of the things that caused the uptick in concern about China was COVID. And I mean, I think COVID caused at the beginning this kind of crisis of Western self-confidence. They looked at the kind of efficient authoritarianism of the Chinese regime. And, you know, you had the Communist Party's in-house intellectuals in China saying that the, the shift in global affairs that had been created by COVID was akin to that that is sometimes created by, by wars. And I mean, there was a feeling that, you know, China was on the rise, West, the West was in decline. But now it is COVID and the Chinese Communist Party's inability to open up China successfully that is causing the biggest protests against the regime since Tiananmen Square. And I think what that shows is that China has, yes, it was an efficient authoritarian regime which gave its advantages at the beginning of COVID, but it is also has weaknesses, which is that, you know, it, it hasn't managed to develop the kind of vaccine technology that, that the mRNA vaccines that the West has. And it has been too proud to say, right, let's import them instead. And therefore, it is really struggling to open up the country. And I think that is also served to wake up firms to the dangers of reliance on China and their kind of exclusive reliance on China and their supply chains. And that is another thing that is accelerating decoupling. Thank you, James. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for listening.